Hello and welcome to this episode of Making a Killing, the podcast from Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative on how corruption is reshaping global politics and security. I'm Nate Sibley, and today we're going to be talking about how crony capitalism really works in China today. And I'm delighted that joining me to do so is uh, my guest, Professor Yuan Yuan Ang, one of the world's leading authorities, if not, to my mind, uh, the leading authority on just that topic. Professor Ang is an academic uh, at the University of Michigan, and she's the author of two really important recent books, How China Escaped the Poverty Trap and China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption. And it's that second book that we'll be really sort of focusing on and exploring some of the main themes today. Uh, so, so welcome to the podcast, uh, Professor Ang. It's, been, it's great to have you. As we were just discussing, I've, I've been really excited about this episode. Uh, to go through go through all the all the really important stuff that you tease out in your, in your in your latest book. If it's okay, we'll start where your book starts, which actually isn't exclusively about China, because what you what you talk about is actually a completely new approach to how we we think about corruption and measuring corruption and talking about corruption. Uh, so usually, when uh, you know corruption, sort of pe- you know policy people like me, we start off by thinking of a particular crime. We think of bribery or you know extortion or whatever it is or fraud. Uh, and then we think about the scale of it. So we'll think about sort of petty corruption, uh, you know, a local traffic cop shaking de- shaking you down at the traffic lights uh, for a speeding ticket, or at the other end of the scale, grand corruption. So we're seeing all the Russian oligarchs uh, having their yachts seized, you know, which they purchase using proceeds from massive state level corruption in, in, in Russia. But your book, uh, I was really fascinated, takes just a completely sort of flips that on its head. Uh, it takes a really different approach. So I wonder if you start by just walking us through uh, what you call the unbundling of corruption. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be on your podcast as well. And you're right in writing this book. I I didn't just want to write a book about how corrupt China is or how exceptional China is. I actually wanted to write a book that uh, pushes us to think about what corruption means in both obvious and visible forms, as well as in uh, less visible and even legalized forms. So the conventional wisdom does not make a distinction among different types of corruption. Like you say, most people think about bribery or extortion. And because it doesn't make distinctions across different types of corruption, people believe that there is a strong correlation between corruption and poverty. Because when we look at corrupt countries in the world, they're all poor. So if you believe this, then naturally China appears puzzling. The Chinese president himself describes corruption as a grave and shocking problem. And yet the Chinese economy has sustained a four decade boom. So this has led some corruption experts to describe China as a giant outlier. So what I ask in my book is, is it really an outlier? And I argue that in fact, China's paradox isn't as exceptional as most people think. The conventional belief that all corrupt countries are poor is too simplistic because it doesn't distinguish among different types of corruption. And the global indices of corruption, such as the CPI, the Corruption Perception Index, fails to capture sophisticated and transactional forms of corruption. So in order to give everyone the concepts to think about different types of corruption, I unbundle corruption into four types. 
So the first type is called petty theft. An example of that is being extorted by corrupt police officers. The second is grand theft. For example, embezzlement of billions of dollars from public accounts into private Swiss bank accounts. And the third type is speed money, which means petty bribes paid to low-level officials to bypass rate tape or avoid harassment. And then there's the fourth type that I call access money. So access money are large rewards given to powerful officials, not just for speed or to bypass rate tape, but in order to access lucrative privileges and deals. So while the first three types of corruption are directly growth damaging, the fourth type acts like a steroid. It can spur investment and even over-investment in China's case, and yet it simultaneously produces distortions and risk. So, so the key to understanding why is it that you see high growth and corruption in China is that the structure of corruption has evolved over decades toward the fourth type, access money, while the first three types were gradually brought under control. That's fascinating. And you have a, you have a really good analogy, uh, you know, when you talk about if a country was a body, the different type, you know, and, and corruption was a drug, the different sort of types to illustrate what they what they do. And I think you describe uh, act, this access money as, as more like steroids, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can, you can kind of, you take enough of it and it will enhance your performance and, and result in the, you know, in this phenomenal growth, but you take too much. And of course, things can go very wrong. Uh, I know some people have sort of reading your book and some of the comments I've seen online uh, have sort of said, well, you know, their interpretation of your book, which I suspect they have done, made without reading mm -hmm. it, is that uh, you know, corruption has been good for China in 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 in, in general terms. But do you distinguish between uh, economic growth and economic development, and and if so, what relation does corruption have to those two different uh, things? So thanks for giving me an opportunity to clarify, which I try to do every single time. <laughs> uh, people. Some people reading the book have the tendency to jump to the conclusion that because China is rich and it has corruption, therefore the conclusion is corruption is good or corruption makes a country rich. And, and that, of course, is a ludicrous argument because my point is that corruption is always harmful. There's really no such thing as socially beneficial corruption, but different types of corruption harm in different ways. So the form of corruption that came to dominate in China, which I call access money, and predominantly takes the form of massive bribes in exchange for lucrative deals from government officials, that can actually encourage more investment, construction, and building, but it produces excessive um, speculative risk and misallocation of resources in the economy. So the harm of that corruption doesn't come immediately, rather it builds up over time. And so, yes, I do make a distinction between GDP growth and development in general. A GDP growth is actually just a gross and simplistic measure of economic activities. So one of the most common 
um, uh, comments that I hear in China is if you dig a hole and then you uh, put the put the earth back into the hole again, you have just produced GDP. Right. So the GDP statistic by itself does not tell us about the quality and sustainability of growth. It also doesn't capture other elements of development, such as equality, social justice, uh, provision of housing for the poor and lower income. And so, yes, I do make a distinction between growth um, grossly measured by GDP and development in general. And my book does not argue that corruption is G-O-O-D, good for development. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad we got that out of the way at the start, um, in case anyone was listening under that impression. Uh, and I'm glad we won't have to argue about that either uh, at the end of the podcast. <laughs> so I, would, I guess just turning to contemporary China, this is a very broad sort of question. But you've already mentioned that there's been a sort of shift uh, you know, the, towards this, what you call access money. Uh, but can you give us a sort of, you know, taking a step back, uh, maybe just sort of an overview uh, of the corruption landscape in contemporary China and how it's evolved maybe over the past couple of decades or so? Because I think most of our listeners yeah. will be quite familiar with, uh, like most people at this point, having watched all these yachts and things been seized with yeah. the, Russian, the Russian model of kleptocracy. And that is really the sort of archetypal sort of, uh, you know, uh, system in which corruption has come to dominate the country, but the Chinese model is very different. And so I wonder if you could you could you maybe, you know, sort of work your way, you know, you've talked about access money, but just mm. if you can, it's a sprawling, it's the second biggest economy in the world, of course, it's not an easy question. But uh, if you could provide us with a sort of this sort of overview of what types of corruption are most pre prevalent and sort of shaping governance in China today. Sure. Um, the first useful thing to know about the Chinese political economy is that the structure of corruption has evolved dramatically since the 1980s. So if you look at the 1980s and 1990s, China at the time was still a developing country with surprisingly weak state capacity. So in those days, it was very common to see petty bribery, bureaucratic extortion, and this happened in both urban and rural parts of China. Uh, but however, get, coming into the 1990s and 2000s, there was a dramatic shift in both the economic model in China, as well as the nature of the public administration. The central government, uh, now led by a post-Deng leadership, uh, made it their mission to build a modern regulatory state fit for a market economy. So they wrote out a comprehensive set of reforms to build up administrative capacity, which then began to allow them to do fairly simple things like track public transactions in this in the public account system, um, which has the effect of allowing them to prevent embezzlement. So if you look at the kinds of corruption cases that used to prevail in the 1990s, a lot of it was embezzlement, uh, misuse of public funds, extortion. But by the time you see China today, these problems have, compared to the past, been brought under control. But the kind of corruption that has really exploded in the past decade are transactional forms of corruption. They are high stakes, they involve powerful officials, 
and they involve the exchange of money and bribes for commercial deals that would make that would help these capitalists make a great deal of profit. I guess when we're thinking about, you know, how how that's how China's approach to governance has shifted and how that's changed, uh, you know, its ability to to deal with corruption. Uh, you know, and I mentioned Russia, and that's the thing that most people will want to, you know, that's the that's the sort of archetypal kleptocracy said that people will be comparing every other corrupt country around the world to. But uh, you know, perhaps the more interesting comparison uh, is, is is I think you mentioned in the book is is, is India, uh, which you know similarly has a large population, started from a sort of similar, well, perhaps a similar sort of place in terms of development over the past few decades. I wonder if you could co- sort of compare, you know, what has happened, what you just described in China with. With, with what has happened or not happened in India, why is it that uh, you know India's growth hasn't been able to explode? Why didn't they develop uh, you know this 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 prevalence of access money? Yeah, China and India makes for a fascinating comparison because the two countries have nearly identical aggregate levels of corruption, but once you unbundle their corruption score, you find that the structure of corruption is different. So the backtrack a little bit in my book, in order to address the limitations of existing corruption indices, which do not distinguish among types, one chapter of my book pilots my own corruption index. So I call this the unbundled corruption index or UCI. What it does is that it measures perceived levels of corruption, but it distinguishes them among the four categories I've just described for you. So the benefit of this approach is we don't talk about corruption as this bundled mass, but we are able to actually think about them and compare them systematically in terms of the type of corruption that is prevalent. So if you look at the comparison of China and India, what you find is that although the overall levels of corruption are almost the same, the most prevalent mode of bribery in India is speed money. Small bribes paid to numerous officials to get past rate tape and to get business licenses. Whereas in China, the most dominant type is access money. And so that opens up an interesting question of why. Like why do these two developing countries have different dominant types of bribery? And I would highlight three reasons. So the first reason is the one that I just talked about, which is state capacity building. China compared to India has much higher administrative capacity. So after the 1990s, with the kind of administrative reforms that were rolled out across the country, the Chinese central government gained tremendously more capacity to fight petty and extractive forms of corruption. It's a super boring fact, but it actually works. (laughs) And then the second reason is that from the beginning of market reform, China in practice had a profit sharing system within the political party as well as the bureaucracy. What that means is that the personal payoffs of political elites and rank and file bureaucrats are linked to their economic performance. So the more money and revenue they're able to generate, the more rents they can collect for themselves. Now, by contrast, in countries like India, 
bureaucrats often have little or no personal stake in collective outcomes. So you have a misalignment of incentives. And then the third reason is that regime type makes a big difference too. China is a developmental autocracy, which means that powerful leaders can easily waive restrictions and open doors. And by, by contrast, India is a fragmented democracy, which means that numerous authorities have the power to block decisions, but not to unilaterally take decisions. And that is why in India, people pay bribes to overcome obstacles. In China, people pay bribes to buy business deals. That's fascinating. Uh, just sort of brings us up to sort of the present. Uh, uh, something you mentioned, actually, no, let's talk a bit about what has brought us to, to the, the, the absolute present day. But the, the context of, you know, if you talk about corruption uh, in China at the moment, uh, one of the things that almost everyone has heard about is, is Xi Jinping's uh, sweeping anti-corruption campaign. Mm -hmm. You know, some people, when you read about it, will say this is a this is a genuine anti-corruption campaign, and it provides the governance sort of model for for other countries around the world. Other people will say, uh, you know, it's actually just a ploy to concentrate uh, power. Uh, you know, under Xi Jinping, he, you know, his allies don't get targeted. It's people that aren't loyal enough to him. They get prosecuted, thrown in jail, fined, whatever, and then his loyalists kind of move up into their positions. And it's been one of the chief ways in which he's consolidated power in China. Could you tell us a bit, you know, just about uh, the scale and the nature of, of Xi's anti and the background to anti Xi's anti-corruption campaign, uh, but also what you, how would you characterize what he's trying to do with that? Sure. Um, you are right that the most frequently asked question about his anti-corruption campaign is, is it just a political purge or is it a genuine effort at institutional reform? And the answer is, it's not either or, it's both. Right? So, so both uh, are relevant answers. There is, of course, an element of politicians using anti-corruption campaigns to get rid of their enemies and to install their favorites. There's no doubt that that would happen. I would be surprised if politicians don't <laughs> use that opportunity, right? Um, but on the other hand, uh, she also recognizes that the political system is rotten from having too much cronyism. He recognizes the excessive decadence uh, within the bureaucracy. So there are, at the same time, genuine efforts at institutional reform. So for example, he introduced a set of uh, bureaucratic regulations that include things like um, bureaucrats are no longer allowed to throw lavish banquets. Right, right? That obviously has really nothing to do with getting rid of enemies, mm -hmm. but it has a much more mundane institutional purpose of correcting bureaucratic norms. And for a typical Western audience, we might think, yeah, what's the big deal about that? You know, what's the big deal about telling officials not to throw lavish banquets? But in China, it is a big deal because if you've ever been to China 
whether as a business person or a visitor, you know that one of the things about China is they have these super lavish <laughs> banquets, right? It's wasteful. And also at some point, um, the government officials themselves uh, are actually sick of this excessive entertainment. But unless someone from the very top comes in to say, like, we have to stop this culture, um, people just keep going on with it. So there are both elements at play. At the highest level, there is definitely factional politics going on. But on a day-to-day -day institutional level, a lot of it it's about cleaning up the bureaucracy and uh, ending some decadent practices. So in your answer to, I think it was like my first question, you gave a sense that this prevalence of, of, of access money, uh, in spite of she's, well, one of the reasons uh, perhaps that she, uh, you know, launched his anti-corruption campaign was that this prevalence of access money, this, this, this growth that was running wild, people, people making sort of riskily speculative investments in the real estate sector, really starting to overheat. And we've sort of seen that maybe uh, arguably in the past couple of years, like the Evergrande. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think that these sort of problems that are affli afflicting corporate China at the moment, uh, you know, are they, are they are they the result of, of this prevalence of access money? And do you see that, do you see that coming to a head now? Uh, you know, is she going to have to sort of really double down on the anti-corruption campaign to try and sort this mess out? That's a great question. And that takes me into the part about where and how we should situate corruption in the larger Chinese political economy. So my book might look like a book on corruption, but it's really a book about China's Gilded Age, which is why it's titled in this way. Mm -hmm. The story is that in the beginning stages of China's development, you had rapid growth and this rapid growth did wonderful things. It lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, but China's development is not all rosy. It also came with corruption, inequality and financial risk. Mm -hmm. So that is why the title Gilded Age usefully captures both sides of the story. It's also useful title because it reminds us that the Gilded Age is by no means unique to China. Mm -hmm. And we have seen the Gilded Age in this country in the late 19th century. Some people have even argued that today we are living through the American Gilded Age 2.0 or 3.0. Mm. Right. So in a sense, by using the term Gilded Age, it forces us to think simplistically beyond GDP and, and to look at the quality of development and the costs that countries have had to pay in order to arrive at their rapid growth. So coming back to your question about what is the link between corruption and more recent regulatory crackdowns, including Xi Jinping's common prosperity campaign, all of it actually comes together logically. From the time that Xi Jinping took office, he was already an inheritor of the Gilded Age. Right? His conditions are dramatically different from Deng Xiaoping. Mm -hmm. He did not inherit a poor country, but in, he inherited a country 
with um, a middle-income economy, but also with corruption, inequality, and risk. And so that is why as soon as he took power, the first two signature policies that he wrote out, one is anti-corruption, the other is poverty eradication. At that time, he had already started to build a populist platform for himself. You could call it populist. I also think you can call it progressive in the sense that he wants to address the excesses of capitalism in China. So when we see it this way, we are less surprised by the emergence of common prosperity in 2021. Many people are under the impression that the common prosperity campaign seemed to like come out of nowhere. And all of a sudden there's this regulatory crackdown on private and tech companies that wiped off billions of dollars from the stock market. But in fact, common prosperity did come out of somewhere. It is an extension of Xi's progressive campaign platform, if you want to call it that. And it had begun as early as 2012, and it first took the form of anti-corruption. So coming towards, I guess, um, starting to sort of wind, wind down for this episode, but your, your book is called China's Gilded Age. As, as you mentioned, it's really helpful for us to sort of, as, as Westerners, I guess, to sort of frame it in our minds and, and think, you know, China's experience here is, is not unique uh, to its own history, that we've been through this ourselves. But one of the things that, you know, America was able to do was through sort of democratic institutions. And I know there's all sorts of arguments about how exactly it did this, but but to, to emerge from its own Gilded Age uh, with a number of, of safeguards against against what was, what was you know, some might argue on the verge of becoming sort of an, an oligarchy. And, you know, as you said, there are people who say that we're now in a, in a, in a situation where we have enormous wealth inequality and uh, perhaps, mm-hmm. you know, loopholes in our politics that, that put us at danger of that again. Uh, that's probably an episode for a whole other podcast. In fact, I think we've done other podcasts on some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, the fact that it's a China's Gilded Age implies that something is coming after it. And how do you think not just Xi's anti-corruption campaign, but his broader, as you say, sort of regulatory uh, behavior. What what kind of comes next for China in terms of corruption? Will we see sort of the disappearance of access money? And if so, what comes after it? What, what forms of corruption will still exist? Or will they have created a sort mm-hmm. of perfectly functioning but not democratic, uh, you know, bureaucratic state? I don't think that there are many countries in the world that can claim to have successfully eradicated corruption. Mm-hmm. What more accurately happens is that corruption changes forms. And in rich countries, it tends to become legalized and institutionalized. So if we look at the situation in China, the root causes of corruption have not yet been removed. And the two root causes are, number one, the government has too much power over the economy. And so, so long as government officials are so powerful, there's always a demand for their favors. And the second root cause is there isn't a free and vibrant civil society and a free press in China that can provide checks and transparency on corrupt activities. So the very sweeping and powerful anti-corruption campaign that she launched in 2013 was highly effective 
in scaring government officials. They are scared of it, but it still hasn't removed these root causes. Going forward, I think one possible change that we might see is that the hotspots of access money might shift from certain sectors of the economy to others. So in the past, access money was highly concentrated in land and real estate because that is where big money is made and where power is easily monetized. If you can take a rural piece of land and turn it into a commercial property, immediately you make tens of millions of dollars. However, as we now know, the real estate sector in China, the bubble has been burst and that is a declining sector uh, in the economy. Whereas the next uh, sectors that are being prioritized by the government is the technology sector, particularly hard technologies like semiconductors. In this area, the Chinese government has spent no expenses uh, pouring billions of dollars into these industries and also creating these multi-trillion uh, government investment funds that partner with private venture capital to invest in emerging industries. All of that is in principle, good industrial policy meant to accelerate innovation, but it might also create new opportunities for rents and corruption, because that's where a lot of money is given out and where the instruments for giving out public funds and favors are a black box that most people don't understand and that the civil society is not does not have any information or monitoring rights over. I have one sort of last question about, which we talked a bit about before, the, the sort of Xi Jinping himself in his in a circle, because we've had, you know, from the, including in the Panama Papers, a number of investigative pieces, where I think it was Bloomberg did the expose on his family's sort of private wealth, uh, maybe like a decade ago now. We talked a lot about the, the anti-corruption campaign. Do you think she is enforcing that against his own inner circle? Uh, or do you uh, do you do you think that they, there is an element of hypocrisy to to what he's doing? So, as a scholar, I am not an investigative journalist, mm -hmm. which means that I'm not able to shed light on what are the various scandals and rumors right. <laughs> of what might possibly be going on. But what I can do is to provide a historical perspective for us to think about the relevance of these issues in a bigger context. And I think the bigger context that's useful to think about is that one of the key foundations for China's rise as a superpower is that Deng Xiaoping put in place a power sharing system. So under Mao, China was a personal dictatorship. And that dictatorship brought great disaster to the country. So when Deng took over, he actually instituted political reforms. It's just that for most Westerners, they didn't understand that he introduced political reforms because most people assume that political reforms have to take the style of Western style democracy. What Deng Xiaoping did instead is that he put in place powerful checks on power 
such as term limits, collective leadership, to make sure that no person could be a Mao again, because he knew that that was devastating for the country. But at the same time, he had to get buy-in from all of these different members of the Chinese Communist Party. So the way to get buy-in from them is that he created this power-sharing system where a small group of these, um, you could call them patriarchs, uh, all had a seat at the table. And at the same time, it was also a profit-sharing system in the sense that their power could be translated into enormous wealth that is not necessarily collected by them, but rather by their enormous networks. Could be their families, but could extend even more broadly to multiple levels of the government and across the country. So that power and profit sharing system was in certain ways preferable to Mao's personal dictatorship. And it created incentives for these communist officials to embrace market reforms. But it also comes with its costs. And that cost is the corruption that we see, uh, the scandals that you've mentioned. How serious they are, I don't think we can ever really know, but we can imagine that it's systemic and large scale because the system is designed to have this power sharing uh, attribute. And so when she came to office, he, remember that he came to office in the midst of a corruption scandal, right, involving a member of the Politburo. That particular crisis made it clear to him that the power sharing system was unsustainable. And that's why he launched this massive anti-corruption campaign, partly to clean up bureaucratic norms at the institutional and mundane levels, but also to tackle the ills of profit sharing. But we are still seeing this story play out. It hasn't reached its conclusion because I don't think that the Chinese leadership has figured out what is a good substitute for power sharing. And so far we have seen that Xi Jinping thinks that the right substitute is let's go back to personalist dictatorship. Right? And so China is still trying to figure out if not personalist dictatorship, if not power sharing, then what is the alternative? That is the big question for China. Wow, that's fantastic and a much more expansive uh, and illuminating answer than I actually thought. As you said, I thought you might reel off a, a number of scandals uh, to finish this off there, but that, that has given me much more food for thought. Uh, and with that, we have come to great, the, the end great. of our the end of our time today. Uh, so I want to want to thank you, Professor Ang, for your for your time. I want to urge uh, and all your insights, of course. Um, as I said, I've been looking forward to this one for, for a long time. Wonderful. Thank you very much for having me. I, it was a real pleasure. Uh, and I also want to urge all our listeners to go out and uh, buy and read China's Gilded Age. Uh, it is a fantastic uh, new way of looking at corruption, but also uh, the best primer I can possibly think of on if you're interested in learning more about the nature of corruption and crony capitalism in China uh, today. Uh, so with that, uh, I'll say goodbye for now and we will see you all next week. Making a Killing is produced by Phil Hegseth and kindly supported by the Kleptocracy Initiative's parent organisation, Hudson Institute. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, please subscribe and share with your friends. 
And if you have time, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple or wherever it is you get your podcasts as it really helps get the word out. That's all from us. We'll be back next time. Bye.